before we get there, before we read, uh, this is a letter written by the Apostle Peter. Some books, uh, especially the, when Paul writes a letter, um, it's who he's writing to. It's different with Peter. Peter is the author of the writer. Uh, but Peter was one of Jesus' disciples, which just means that everywhere Jesus went, Peter went. Uh, and at all times, Jesus was teaching Peter and the other disciples about the kingdom of heaven. Um, and then what it looks like to live here as an ambassador for the kingdom, for the kingdom that is to come. Uh, but after Jesus left to ascend back into heaven, uh, Peter became the leader of this ever-increasing and ever-expanding um, church of this new kingdom. And Peter, he's traveled all around the, um, the Fertile Crescent and in the Roman Empire, uh, and he's planting and visiting churches. And, <clears throat> and some of these churches are uh, what, what he mentions in verse 1 of chapter 1, where he says, uh, to, the, to the believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, um, which is just modern-day Turkey, that area, but these are people that he knows and loves dearly. Whether or not he planted, whether or not he just knows these churches, knows these people, like these are his friends. Why is he writing to them? Because somewhere around 64 AD, Emperor Nero of the Roman Emperor, em, Empire, he started killing Christians. He had lions to come and eat them alive and he was burning them alive as torches for the night. And we have a photo of just what that might look like. So you can see some are strung up. Some are just live prey for these lions that are coming out of the, from under the Colosseum. And these Colosseums of Roman citizens are watching this circus unfold cheering. Peter is actually writing from the capital city of Rome, um, and scholars believe that about three months after writing this, Peter will be crucified. These are potentially the last things that Peter will ever get to say to his brothers and sisters, and he knows it. Like He knows that his death is coming. But Peter so submissive to the will of God and so poised and composed in the literal face of death he wants his friends to stand firm in the true grace of God. Despite all of the persecution that's coming or that may be present in that moment, he wants them to stand firm in the true grace of God. And so he, to explain what that looks like in the midst of suffering, he writes them this letter. Peter writes over and over again, suffering in this way for doing good is a good thing. Jesus suffered in the same way. We are like our Savior when we suffer wrongly. So in this Guys, remember your identity in Christ, your safety in Christ, that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, one day, and it's coming soon for me. We will get to be with Jesus in glory. Have this in your mind. And in our text today, Peter's gonna say to them, arm yourselves with a way of thinking. Fight, but not with weapons. Fight with a way of thinking, a mindset. A mindset of what? It's actually a mindset of who. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking as Christ's thinking. Why would Peter write this specifically? Let's read. 1 Peter 4, verse 1, all the way through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, 
arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you as one of, of, of millions of churches across the globe, maybe not all at the same time, maybe some of us met a little bit earlier, maybe some of us met um, in the middle of the night, fearing persecution, fearing death, but as just one of those churches, God, as one of the local bodies of believers that, that you've called us to here, God, we pray that you would help us to trust you. We pray that you, would, that you would step into our hearts and minds during this time to, to do surgery on our hardened hearts, to take away the sin and, and the sinful things that we might try to believe or, or feel are true and, and, um, and speak to us by your word, that we may trust in it, that we may trust in you by it. But this is only a work that you can do, Father. And so we come to you and we pray for humility. We pray for an openness to, be, to being able to, uh, to change. And we pray that, um, that as one of those bodies of believers, we would magnify Christ. That this place right here, right now, in, in this time in history, that we would show Jesus Christ as more beautiful and more glorious than anything this world has to offer. In order for that to happen, it has to be by your spirit, by your work. So would you do it, Father? Would you show forth your glory in us today? In all of this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Arm yourselves with Christ's way of thinking so as to live. Arm yourselves with Christ's way of thinking so as to live. What is Christ's way of thinking? In our text, we see two ways of Christ's thinking. One is cease from sin, and the second is live according to the will of God. The first is cease from sin, and the second is live according to the will of God. Christ's way of thinking is ceasing from sin and living according to the will of God. So arm yourselves with Christ's way of thinking so as to live. Let's look at the first one, cease from sin. If you look at verse three. Sorry, not verse three, verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So here is our main point. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Thinking about what? In this context, the present suffering the utter hell that you're hearing about your brothers and sisters in Christ going through, the dispersion that you're a part of because of something you were wrongly blamed for, even the death that you may have to endure. Think about it the way Christ would think about it. Now, it's not just a you know, dilly around with this thought, but a arm yourselves. 
gather the weapons of this mindset in your brain. Why? Verse keeps going. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is about Christ. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Why? For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Uh, That whoever can only be Jesus because only Jesus has ceased from sin. But this is the mindset. This is the intent that we are to arm ourselves with. To the extent that Jesus sought to put sin to death, we do the same. We have the same way of thinking. To cease from sin is a Greek perfect tense verb, which means at one point in the past, something happened, an event happened that has ongoing and continual results forever. It's how we know that this is about Jesus. This was Jesus' effectual and lifelong ceasing from sin in order to live a life of perfection before God in in the flesh. And this past event has ongoing results because it is Christ's suffering and death that you and I now identify as our own in Jesus. And so we die to the sin the way Jesus died to sin. Peter's argument is since Christ gave himself to deliver us from sin, from the sin that would destroy us, why go back to live in it? In arming ourselves with Christ's mind, in realizing our new identity in Christ and holding fast to it, We have now, therefore, like Christ, in Christ, we've died to sin. Romans 6 says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, here's the reason, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Die to sin. Arm Arm yourselves with Christ's way of thinking in dying to sin. But the question arises, if we have died to sin's dominion, if we are no longer enslaved to sin, like what Romans 6 says, why do we still struggle? Why do, I still, why do I still sin and struggle with sin daily? Why is that true? First John says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, let's start with acknowledging this and confessing it before God. Nothing surprises God. So it only serves to deceive ourselves if we remain isolated. If we have given our life to Christ and we know that his death on the cross cancels our sin, then even our sin and sinful hearts are not deal breakers for God, even though we continue to struggle and fail with sin. It's actually our commitment to trying to work it all out on our own that keeps us from God, that keeps us from walking with him. The gospel truth is that while God knows our sinful hearts, he deals with us as though we are perfect in Jesus. We will not begin to deal with our sin if we do not first believe in the gospel that covers us. But since Jesus has covered us, he has, for those who would believe, we can grow in ceasing from sin. 
being completely victorious over all sin, like that's only gonna come in glory and sanctification is a process. But in the power of the spirit that makes us alive, we can and should see growth in ceasing from sin and in dying to sin. Romans 8 says this, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul wouldn't write that if it wasn't possible. We arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. Why? Look at verse two. Here's the why. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. One of these we die to, one of these we live to. Why? Because one of these leads to guilt and shame and death And one of these leads to joy and satisfaction in life. So let's just look at it. What leads to death? If you look at verse three, it's what the text calls human passions. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. There was a time that uh, these things were sufficient for them. Like there was some life. To, to doing these actions. Um, and Peter's audience, like they have this as their background. A lot of them um, come from pagan backgrounds and where they are living have pa- pagan backgrounds. They were sexually immoral. They were drunk. They were idolaters who worshiped their own pleasure and comfort. But the time has passed for <clears throat> these things to bring any worship to. Why? Because it's not enough. What they find, what, uh, what you and I find is in trying to worship all these things and trying to worship a lifeless idol like what Aaron just mentioned, like it's gonna not satisfy us. It's going to bring frustration to us. Like, man, this isn't working. It's not supposed to. Once we believe in Jesus, then whatever it is that unbelievers want to do, whatever it is that unbelievers say brings them life, We are to die to. Not because we're following a list of fuddy-duddy rules, but because there is a true and better joy that comes from forsaking these acts. God doesn't take away our joy in bringing us to faith, but promises us a better joy and a better pleasure and a better comfort and life than all of the sin in the world could ever bring. Jesus will be more and do more for us than sin ever could. That's why a life of sin always leads to frustration. It's supposed to. We are created beings who are supposed to worship an everlasting and eternal father, not an idol. Arm yourselves with the way of thinking that Jesus had when it comes to sin. And just think of the men and women reading this letter. You know that they're sinful, just like you and I yet they are reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the work needed to save them is finished and that they can rest in Jesus. You know that a lot of inner turmoil is happening. If people are dying, if, if they are, their friends are dying and they are probably going to die as well. But Peter writes this so that they can rest in Jesus. This is the point of arming ourselves to strive, to fight, to arm ourselves, to battle for Rest. 
in Jesus' finished work on our behalf. The good news of the gospel is not a call for us to strive toward any work to be saved, but to strive to remember the work of Jesus to save us and then live in light of it over and over and over and over again because that's where we find our rest. It's war because we love sin. We don't want to kill sin. The way we kill sin, the way we successfully strive and work to put to death sin is by doing whatever it takes to be more satisfied in Jesus. The way we successfully strive and work to put sin to death is by doing whatever it takes to be more satisfied in Jesus, to be more restful in Jesus, to be more content in Jesus than in sin. So all striving, all working, all fighting is to rest, to be content, to be satisfied, to be happy in Jesus. We put to death sinful temptation by a superior satisfaction in Jesus. It's not that we follow this list of rules that takes away our joy, but that we have a better joy that we're trying to get to. Not by our willpower, so how do we do this? We can't muster up any of this, so how do we do it? How do we live according to the will of God? How do we live in the spirit like what Romans says? First Peter, a little bit later in chapter four says this, let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may get the glory through Jesus. So how? How do we strive and work and fight to serve God? How do we strive and work and fight to, to cease from sin, to put sin to death, to rest in Jesus' work by receiving power and grace from God so that God gets the glory? There's a reason you and I can't work for it. God gets no glory that way. There's a reason why you and I are sinful. God gets the glory of saving sinners. And that power flows simply through faith, through trust. The psalm that Aaron read um, says, do not trust in these idols because when you trust in these idols, you become more like them. Trust in the Lord so that you become more like him. Have faith. So then the question is, do you, fight, do you fight your sin from a position of victory in Jesus or do you fight to work harder? Do you fight to rest in the finished work or do you think there's work left to be done? Do you fight to believe or do you fight against believing in order to work? To arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ had, we must cease from living in sin. We must put it to death by the power of the Spirit, by faith. But if we're dead to sin, we must also be alive in another way. And this is point two, live according to the will of God. Obviously, these two cannot be separated. But to cease from or to die to sin, we must live to something else. And this is the other aspect in our text of arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. We live according to the will of God. The mind of Jesus as he's on the cross is not my will, but your will be done. In complete submission to God the Father, ours must be the same. Verse one, uh, again, just starting with verse one again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For 
Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But don't worry about it. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this, verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The entire letter of 1 Peter is about standing firm in the true grace of God. That by the precious blood of Jesus Christ who has brought us out of darkness into marvelous light, we've been made new. And so we're called over and over and over again back to the cross to be reminded of who we are in Christ, that we may live in light of that. We see sin and death and darkness on one side. Yes, we always will. But on the other side of this letter, we see life and light and mercy. We see darkness and light. We're supposed to see both. There is no light without darkness, but there is light. And the light here is what the text describes as living according to the will of God. So what does that mean for us? In the context of chapter three, if you look back up to chapter three, verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. This is just contextually speaking, living according to God's will. In submitting fully to the plan of God over our own desires, over everything that we want, despite what has come, despite what is coming or despite what may be, may be coming in the future, we must accept the fact that God says no to our best lives now. Sometimes he calls us to suffer and die. Nearly every time he calls us to die. My proof is that out of all Christians on earth ever, only two of them did not die. We are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. Jesus put his request before the Father with sweat like blood, take this cup away from me. Jesus was crying out for relief. He asked for the cup to be removed, but God said no. The way of suffering was the Father's plan. It was the Father's will. The cross was not Satan's idea. The passion of Christ was not the result of human contingency. It was not the accidental contrivance of Herod or Pilate. The cup was prepared, delivered, and administered by Almighty God. And yet Jesus prayed, if it is your will. Jesus did not name it and claim it. He knew his father well enough to understand that it might not be his will to remove the cup. The gospel is not a fairy tale. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This nevertheless, this prayer is the supreme prayer of faith. It's always uttered in a spirit of submission. No matter what, what happens, God, I submit to you in all, in all of my prayers, your will be done. The issue is, that I've found at least, is that most of the time we don't know what the will of God is. But we can take comfort in the fact that God knows. 
Let's live with this in mind. Would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 8? It goes Matthew, Mac, Marth, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. If you find Matthew, let me know. Romans 8, verse 1, and we're going to read through to verse 13. This is God speaking. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. It is not God, your will be done. Indeed, it cannot do that. Those who, are <clears throat> those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, believers, Christians, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, although we still struggle with sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Arm yourself with Christ's way of thinking. Cease from sin as he did and live submissive to the will of God as he did. Why? It is more glorious. It is better to give glory to God. It is more joyful for, it is what we're designed for. And then Peter writes in the last verse that the gospel was preached, not merely lived out, to those who are dead, that they might live too. It's for the surpassing worth of the glory of God and for the sake of, of the salvation of those around us that we arm ourselves with this thinking. Because nothing else matters but the glory of God and the eternity of others. We want others to get to experience. Like there are thousands and thousands of people that we know that are around us that we see every day going to work or at work or whatever that they're living a life of sin that only leads to death and you can see it in their eyes how heavy it is. We have a better way. That's why we evangelize. That's why we preach and proclaim the gospel is because it's better 
because nothing else matters but the glory of God and the eternity of others. How do we know? Three months later, Peter was killed. And yet he didn't run. He denied Jesus three times before. He knows that there is no joy there. But there is joy in glorifying God by living submissive to the will of God, even unto death. My hope and my prayer is that that would be us. And there is joy also in showing others this glory that they may worship the Savior, the creator of the universe, and that they may be saved too. One day, we will be perfect in glory at the start of eternity. And we will be at the table with the triune God and we will look around and see all of those who believed in Jesus. All those who armed themselves with this way of thinking from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation, from right right around us to Dallas to Texas across the U.S. to across the globe. Maybe men and women that are at church right now. And we will get to praise God together forever. All of these tongues together. Forever. For the amazing work that made it possible. In the meantime, until we get there, because uh, newsflash, we are not there yet. But in the meantime, may we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. As unreachable as it may seem to us right now, the unreachable came to us. Rest there. And so now, by faith, we look to and we accept the love of the Father to us in Christ Jesus at the cross, and we cease from sins that Jesus was killed for. And we look to Jesus to see how to submit and say, not my will, but yours, Father. Whatever sin comes up, not my will, not what I want, not what I desire, not what I really, truly, really want in this moment, but your will be done, God. All of this is possible because of Jesus. As we said just at the beginning of this, there is no work, there is no ceasing from sin, there is no living according to the will of God without first knowing and and taking in again the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is where we find our rest. It's not about trying to kill sin so that we can be saved, but because we are saved, now we do these things. And we are. If you're a believer in this room, you have been saved. As we come to the Lord's table in remembrance of this finished work, may we rest in him alone. If you've been made righteous by faith, you're welcome to the table. You're part of the family. But if you're not a believer, or if you're in any unrepentant sin, I ask that you would remain in your seat during this time. Please remain in your seat during this time. First Corinthians says that um, you would be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. I don't want that for you. We take seriously the body and blood of Christ. If you're unrepentant, Jesus says, come to me and find your rest again. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Return to belief in Jesus' finished work on your behalf.
Remember, it's not the mark of a true believer to not sin, but to confess it, but to repent. Do so by faith today. If you're an unbeliever, you are what this passage calls dead. Because of your sin, you deserve eternity in hell. But that's exactly what Jesus died for. Jesus became the sacrifice to take on the punishment that you deserved, that you may live too. There is no hope for you anywhere else, but there is hope for you here. Confess your sin and utter lack of righteousness on your own and believe in Jesus' work on your behalf for the sake of your eternal destiny. If you have any questions about that, please find me. Please find one of the elders so that we can talk to you about it. But for all of us, here's our prayer this morning. Father, we admit and confess our sin of not arming ourselves with Jesus' way of thinking. We need this body and this blood to cover this sin. Would you, by your grace, renew and arm our minds by the power of your spirit that we may live? In Jesus' name we ask, amen.